what is it, what would you put your finger on that makes kind of Ralph Bakshi in the same league as, as many people say, uh, in the same league as Walt Disney and uh, Miyazaki? So Ralph Bakshi is really interesting in that he hasn't made that many animated movies. He came out sort of in the 1970s with a run of hits, which we'll mainly focus on, and then has made a few intermittently since then. Uh, what he's often widely credited at is 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 sparking interest in adult animation, um, adult in the you know adult sense of the word, and adult in literally just meaning for for more mature audiences sense of the word. Um, he's um, a filmmaker that's very sort of iconoclastic and abrasive, and his his films are by no means sort of perfect, right? I, and I'm not ever going to claim they are. They're, 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 we're going to go through them, and they're 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 kind of very shab shabbily made, and very kind of they feel like a scrapbook stuck together on occasion. And but to me, that's kind of part of his charm. He comes around in the late 60s, early 70s. And to, to me, and, and as has been discussed sort of in some of the scholarship on him, he's sort of the, the, the Hollywood new auteur for the animation circuit. So whilst Scorsese and, you know, Brian De Palma and, uh, you know, Francis Ford Coppola are sort of ripping up the rule book in terms of Hollywood live action filmmaking, we've got this figure, Ralph Bakshi sort of comes along and reacts to what has essentially been Disney and Disney alone for the last sort of 40 years of animation history and makes movies that for a very short period are make as much money as the Disney movies uh, nice. by doing something very, very different yeah. and, and very interesting. And, and to me, that's that's sort of where my my interest in him came from and, and why I think he's a really interesting filmmaker to look at because he's not one that's necessarily that well known unless you're an animation geek, but his legacy sort of lives on in that he sort of inspired others, particularly in the US context, to think outside the Disney box a little. Yeah, uh, and as t as tends to be the case with uh, the director reviews that we do, Alex, uh, with, you know, the ones we've done already and the ones that we'll do in the future, uh, is how you won't actually see their films on TV anymore, uh, which is which is scandalous. But at least in terms of our first one, yeah, <laughs> not entirely unsurprising uh, there, Alex Sargent. The right. first X-rated animation in history, Fritz yeah. the Cat. What is it? So Fritz the Cat is um, an adaptation of a series of comic strips by a cartoonist called Robert Crumb, although it is a very loose adaptation. Uh, the, uh, uh, Crumb himself sort of distanced himself from the He hated it. <laughs> he absolutely hated it, yes, yes. I was putting it more politely than that, but you're right, he hated it. Um, basically, it's a very it's, it's very episodic and very loose narrative, but it's centred around you know an anthropomorphic uh, Warner Brothers, Disney-esque character, cat in a jumper called Fritz, um, the difference is, is that rather than living in cartoon land, he lives in the streets of New York in the 1970s and engages in all kind of um, debauched and graphic <laughs> behaviour. There are scenes involving Fritz uh, successfully seducing uh, a bunch of college students. I say college students, a rabbit and a and another cat and all these kind of, they're all anthropomorphic characters by quoting existentialism at them. And then an orgy scene takes place. Um, there's a scene involving uh, Jewish pigs, literally Jewish pigs. Um, uh, sorry, pig. I know I've got the scene wrong. Sorry, pigs interrupting a Jewish ceremony. Um, pigs being the cops. So there's some of a fun little sort of anthropomorphic mess fail going on. And basically it's an extremely sort of abrasive graphic uh, tear up of the rule book, right? It's anthropomorphic, it's cutesy in its design, but it's far from cutesy in its subject matter. And it's shambolic and all over the place. And there is basically no narrative to speak of, but it's extremely funny um, in places. And as I say, in terms of um, bouncing off the Disney model, it is basically Baxi sticking his finger up to sort of the Disney model of of what animation can and can't do. And for that reason, it's really quite fascinating to watch. I think. Definitely, uh, this is my favourite of the three by far. Really, okay. uh, I really enjoyed this one. The whole thing, you know, as as people realise when they watch it, it's just basically political and social commentary that he sees around him with race, attitudes towards class in 1970s America. Funny, but also as you've obviously correctly said it's funny and crude to both complement those themes but also to go against them 
in a completely inappropriate manner, which is just fantastic. It is worth pointing out something you've already mentioned, the elephant in the room. Uh, not the elephant in the room in the film, I'm sure there is one somewhere, yeah. but rather that the uh, animation, it doesn't hold up particularly well. But that is not the point, really. Neither is, does the quality of the voice acting, uh, but for me, both of these two things kind of add to the charm. It kind of uh, it captures an era of real-life America, very obviously, with what he had at his disposal, uh, which, frankly, was fuck all, wasn't it? Yeah, he worked on a very, very small budget, and, and both in terms of money and in terms of time. His yes. films are remarkable in that he... We're gonna do, most of the films we're talking about here were made within about a 13-year period, and at one point he was making a film a year. An animated movie a year is insane. Most big productions of animation take between four and five years to, to work between, and he's working not only on these films like in a really short time period, but with a very small team of animators as well. Yes. And you're completely right. It shows on screen, right? In that the voice acting is very um, slapdash and the animation is crude in that it's very simple. Often he'll use um, similar backgrounds and over and over again, there'll be a lack of overall detail. I think there's a certain charm to it. I think, again, I think part of what he's trying to do here is sort of break not only break the narrative conventions of Disney, so we've got you know anthropomorphic characters doing, saying things that you wouldn't find anywhere near a Disney movie, but you've also got the style. Yeah, it, the lack of perfection is part of it, right? It's you know screw yeah. getting things absolutely technically spot on, screw having teams and teams of animators. Let's let's draw and and like you know animate like a flip book, and and that's part of the pleasure as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there are so many great scenes in this. I don't want to spoil any of them because I want people who don't know this film to go and watch them. Uh, but, but actually, one of my favourite scenes is kind of one that he kind of does in between the main film actually happening, which is the kind of the Rolling Stones track that's playing, <laughs> and then the film comes towards the screen, the actual, you know, the actual film, uh, and there's just a bird like clicking his fingers out of tune to the song. So out of sync, I should say. It's it's brilliant. You can't get any better than that. It, it, it's just it makes so little sense, but it's also just perfect. Yeah. And and the synagogue scene itself is just you know brilliant. Them them got them uh, just rows and rows and rows of people just chuntering away and then listening to the news about something that happens in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and uh, one way or another that they favour and then to have a massive party. It's just absolutely great. So many great moments in this. I mean, Alex. I mean, the, this film itself spawned. More Fritz the Cat films of that in itself with a story, isn't it? Because obviously he, um, Mr. Coombs was that much pissed off with this, <laughs> <laughs> the bastardisation of his beloved Fritz the Cat, that in a, in a way he kind of obviously then went to make some other ones himself that re would result in Fritz dying. So uh, Bakshi would never ever get his hands on Fritz the Cat ever again, something like that, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He wouldn't he wouldn't let him go anywhere near it again. So they sort of made some sequels. I think the sequels actually were not ne weren't made with necessarily crumbs involvement either. I think they were sort of attempts by the studio to cash in a little bit. Yeah. But you're right. What's insane. This film um, is one of the most. Uh, in fact, um, up until a film we'll talk about in, in another podcast, um, it's his highest grossing movie. Uh, mm. and, and it grossed as much as the Disney feature from that year. It was a huge hit. Right. And it's a huge hit with sort of college audiences and, you know, 18, you can imagine, right. Yeah, Being at course. college <laughs> in 1972 and this thing comes along like this is this is like a party right on the screen. And uh, so there's that issue as well. Like it, 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 you know, it, these things made money for a very short period. And I think it, it, it caught onto this wave of sort of, you know, 1970s counterculturalism. You mentioned the use of pop music. That's another recurring thing we'll see in a few of his movies. And it's an, another stalwart of the sort of American new wave. You know, Scott says he's using the Rolling Stones in Mean Streets. Exactly the same. I think yeah. it's the same year it came out. Yeah. But we've got this happening in an animated movie, which is which is really fascinating. It is. Uh, move on then to his next piece, which uh, was done, yeah. if not if not the same year, then the, a couple of years after, or very very recently, a heavy uh, more recent than the, obviously that one, a heavy traffic, uh, a semi autobiographical Well, heavy traffic for me at least is a mm -hmm. semi autobiographical piece which follows a young illustrator called Michael Corleone through seventies inner city life in America. Uh, I'm probably going to upset you now, uh, Alex, because for me and from what I understand, I'm I'm, I'm in the minority on this one. I hate this one. Right. Uh, I think it's fairly awful, really. Uh, it treads a very similar path. I think, as I've kind of alluded to, similar themes, you know, in a, in a life in America and all the rest of it. 
Uh, it doesn't really have anything different to say, though I suspect, and I think you'll probably make this point yourself, is that it's not really about that this time. He's kind of done that already. This is rather his, him trying his craft at live action for the first time. And I do actually quite like the point that I do ascertain from this film, the, the more original point than, uh, than Fritz, the Cat, Fritz the Cat did, was America, life in America as being inside a pinball machine. Kind of, you know, lots of flashing lights and people bashing the fuck out of each other, which he kind of tops and tails the film with, which is a very, very interesting observation and he makes it very well. Uh, and, and Heavy Traffic for me is a convincing showcase for his natural talent as an animator, really, and a cartoonist. Because when you kind of see the people that he has committed to drawing, their likeness is quite amazing, considering uh, how quickly he made it, as you've already mentioned, and his non-existent huge team. Uh, so for a filmmaker... Uh, he obviously succeeds in this one for me as an animator cartoonist but the actual film itself I didn't get on with it as much as Fritz the Cat, uh, Alex Yeah, it's my least favourite of the three we're talking about today as well I, I, I like it enough but I think I think, as I say, I think one of the things about Bakshi is that we, can, we, can, we can't claim him to be a terrific narrative storyteller no. <laughs> um, Fritz the Cat is extremely episodic, there's no clear narrative that runs all the way through and the same is true here in that it sort of jumps between ideas and jumps between notions and it nearly gets away with it as you say with this recurring idea of the pinball and there's a certain randomness to it that it tries to turn into a virtue but I, I'm sort of with you in that I'm not sure it's that successful in, or even really it knows what it's trying to do but I think there are things to admire in it I think again the use of sort of a pop soundtrack um, the desire to sort of uh, go a slightly further than Fritz the Cat and actually sort of set create a cartoon landscape drawing on real humanoid characters in New York and playing with that a little bit um, I think the film has some interesting you know as you say semi-autobiographical elements that are that are worth engaging with and you know it's, it's not again what's perhaps innovative about the movie is it's telling a story that's much that, that isn't grounded in any animation sort of history it's not it's not an anthropomorphic sort of satire it's a, you know it's a story that, so, that supposedly could be told in live action right yeah. um, for that it, it can be applauded because it's sort of for the time it's challenging the subject matter of what um, animation can and can't be about um, but I am with you in that I don't think it's it's one of his more successful pieces. It certainly wasn't commercially successful. This was a much, much, much more limited release. Um, and I think he's, um, I think oh, there's it's a, there's a film much later in his career, which we'll get to, called American Pop, which I think it could be read as a sort of attempt to redo Heavy Traffic mm -hmm. at, at it, with more thought and more um, certainty. But I won't touch on that as much as I'd like to, because I'm sure we'll get there um, in, due, in other podcasts. We but yes, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I mean, it's not without merit, of course. I mean, we both mentioned the pinball stuff that I think we both like. Uh, I like the kind of stuff that he has with his, well, what we assume to be his own family, uh, with Marco Corleone's family, like the, the breakfast, which is like absolutely huge. <laughs> like the, the thing's got everything on it. There's a few little touches and, and this weird orgy that happens between his mom and some other people and then his father and some people and there's some really really superfluous violence as well with shotguns in the bedroom and really really fucking bizarre stuff but interest <laughs> interesting uh, i think i think the problem with this one and uh if i'm to presume how he actually made this is that he, he just kind of wandered around and kind of met people and kind of tried to get a grasp of what's happening around him which i guess he did with fritz mm. the cat as well it's just that on this occasion he simply didn't meet as much as many interesting people this time. I mean, I, you know, I, I, without reading an interview or anything like that, I don't know how he made the film exactly, but it seems that this time around, it just wasn't as interesting. The, the people weren't as interesting enough. It, what little story there is, it just wasn't as gripping as Fritz the Catmore. It's just, you know, I mean, you, you get what yeah. I'm kind of saying, don't you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I think, I think we're... I think what he's trying to do is I think there's, there's, there's some Vox popping going on. So he's sort of gone yes, into exactly. the streets of New York, filmed some people and then animated them. Yes. And I think he's also playing, and we'll see this again when we get to the next film, but he's playing with sort of grotesque uh, images and stereotypes. And he's, and there's, there's some interesting things going on there and that we have sort of Italian Americans and Jewish Americans and they're being depicted sort of very, very sort of uh, racially coded. And, you know, there's there, there which is kind of, uh, uh, which is just an interesting aspect to his career is that he's 
very interested in using racial stereotypes and playing with them through the animated form, not necessarily using them without critiquing them. In fact, um, that's what I think he's going at here, right, is that he's using sort of Italian-American stereotypes against themselves to sort of yes. make statements but it you know we're going to get to how these things can be read in two different ways so i think it's an interesting sort of it's an interesting film to watch to see bakshi develop but you have yeah. to be, you'd have to be doing something like what we're doing right now which is sort of being interested in bakshi as a body of filmmaking to get much out of it i think it's the cat is a film you could take on and show people um devoid of context and there's there's stuff to get at it heavy traffic is much more sort of uh hard to penetrate indeed uh I would also kind of throw that at Coonskin, really, although it, it, it's more grandiose than anything he's, he's ever done so far. There's even more in it than ever before. So just give us a brief overview. Please, yeah. Please. So Coonskin, as you can get from the title, is an extremely provocative piece. <laughs> and actually um, got him in trouble at the time when it was sort of premiered. Uh, it, it, it was picketed by a lot of uh, African-American representation groups. As you can imagine, it plays with a lot of African-American stereotypes. For me, however, this is this is the best of the three. I really like Coonskin. Um, I think it's not completely successful, but I think it's actually doing some, something very interesting. He describes it as a remake of Song of the South, which yes. is the, yeah. Disney, um, the, the Disney movie that you're not allowed to see. And will never um, ever get released on disc. And will, and will certainly never get... Will it ever get released on disc is, another, is, is a really interesting question. I th think eventually they will have to release it, but, um, but, they're, but they're still keeping it in the vault. I've seen it. I don't know if you've um, oh, seen God, Song of the it. South. I have indeed. Yeah, well, very oddly, when I was growing up, you could buy it on VHS. You could, VHS only, yes. <laughs> you really could. You could buy copies yeah. in, the, in the UK. You, in the States, it's never been released on home video because it's ah. obviously more uh, motion charged. For people who don't know, Song of the South is the Br'er Rabbit uh, Disney yeah. film. It's used, actually, in one of their in their parks. There's a ride called Splash Mountain, which is based on it, which is even more bizarre that they'd, you know, they'd ban this movie themselves but but still make a theme park right out of it um but it's the brer rabbit stories told by a character called uncle remus and the film is sort of extremely problematic to say the least in its representation of race um it sort of celebrates a slave the slave master relationship and makes it cozy and cuddly and very very odd so anyway back, those back black people yeah Sorry, those, sorry. It really is one of those those black people, just yeah, different and, species almost. It's uh, uh, it's it's frightening, but it, very it, interesting. It, it is, but but it, but I would, the only thing I've said, having watched it recently recently um, is that it's no more frightening or less frightening than Gone with the Wind. Like oh, it's not. it's yeah. and there you know it's it's you know to, to keep it banned and it's, it's sort of given it a level of infamy that the film doesn't really deserve but 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 coonskin to get back to sort of bakshi is is a sort of well bakshi describes it as a remake of it and you can see that in it and it's a sort of story based on this wraparound of a of a preacher um and a sort of local um rapscallion to want of a better word who are but, uh, put in the cell overnight, and he proceeds to tell this story, which is then told through the animation of uh, brother, brother rabbit, brother bear, and preacher fox. But instead of them hanging around in sort of quaint uh, South, um, South, Southern America, they hang out in the streets of Harlem. Uh, they get into sort of trouble with mob bosses. They um, end up sort of uh, getting in all kinds of sort of scrapes. I, th I, th I think it's a really interesting movie that uses racial stereotypes sort of against themselves. It's extremely provocative. It was banned. Uh, well, effectively banned on its release because it was picketed so much by by anti um, by, by African American empowerment organisations, and I think I think the reading of the film being is very um, harsh on Bakshi. I think it's the opposite. I think it's a film about um, the history of racial stereotypes and the history of these issues, and it deals with them in a really fascinating but brazenly unabashed way. I really like it. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I suppose what we can ascertain from from this uh, and indeed these films, I mean, what should we call them? Like the Harlem trio of films that you did. I mean, it, it's kind of like that. It's yeah. Kind of, on the one hand, you've got the serious subject matter mixed with kind of the irreverence of the animation, humour, and cartoon violence. On the other hand, uh, um, only one of these kind of gets it down to perfection for me, and that's Fritz the Cat. Mm -hmm. uh, critics, fans, and indeed Bakshi himself say that this is his best film. Uh, the thing for me is that I'm just not getting the sense of fun that I need out of it. To okay. go with the irrelevance, to go with the irrelevance as well as a lot of what he's saying. Uh, it appears to me that basically he took the anthropomorphism from the first film and then he mixed it with like, the humanist and more serious angle of the second, Heavy Traffic. And mm -hmm. the kind of the amalgamation between Heavy Traffic and Fritz the Cat is Coonskin. 
but along the way, it kind of forgot to be funny. It forgot to be humorous to me. Maybe mm. that is just me, Alex. Cause I know I'm in the minority for this one, but uh, that it, I, I'm lacking fun. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure it's... I think it's not that fun. I'll probably... Fritz the Cats is more fun. This is um, oddly more serious. But I, I think... I think there is some fun to be had in the in the sort of anthropomorphic trio wandering around Harlem, um, get you know, and sort of you know, there's some you know odd references to sort of the Brer Rabbit stories into Song of the South. Yeah. There's a sequence that plays out like the uh, story of the Tar Baby, um, very sort of closely. And doing that, I think, I mean, it, 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 it's a it's a film that might make you smile wryly quite a lot. But I agree, it's less fun. But I do think it's a I think it's the film of the three where Batchy knows what he's trying to do and and does it coherently. Um, I think the first two, uh, in comparison with this one, is much more sort of experimental, experimental and playful. Yeah. yeah, he's sort of, he's thinking things through as he makes them. With this one, there's a cert, there's a clear thesis, I think, in this movie that he sees through. Whether it's um, perfectly executed, I don't know, but I think it is much more coherent than the others in terms of what it's trying to do and what it's trying to say. Um, for me, that the sort of the most provocative bits are where you get the um, the character of Miss America. Miss America, absolutely, yes. I was yeah. going to bring that up. Yeah, wow. I mean, I mean, did you want to talk about that? Well, how can we not? I mean, it's um, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I believe somebody of uh, Asian descent, or he might he may well be black. I can't quite remember. Uh, basically, it's constantly trying to get into Miss America's pants. Essentially, yeah. Miss America being some eight foot tall by the looks of it. And how he made it look that tall on screen is quite an accomplishment. But a <laughs> massive, massive, oversized, big-breasted, voluptuous, bosomed woman, who uh, and and then she she's quite happy to kind of titillate and offer and this kind of thing. And then as soon as this this particular character gets close to getting, I suppose for, for a crass term, the cherry, uh, then uh, he gets beaten up badly, time and time again, re-killed, shot, you name it, uh, crushed. Uh, just what a point to make, and he made it very well. Yeah, it's it. What's what's amazing about those sequences is they play like Warner Brothers, like five minute shorts, right? <laughs> yes. um, it's Wiley e. Coyote trying to get the Roadrunner, but the difference <laughs> is, is that as you're saying, like the the Roadrunner is in this case this sort of grotesque, uh, uh, you know, bikini model Miss America, and and Wiley e. Coyote is a um, yeah African American man who um, is is depicted visually as a sort of particularly sort of pernicious you know um what a coonskin for want of a better word right oh, yeah you know um and you know i think the, i think that is those little bits are like wow this is where bakshi could like could be one of you know what his films could all be masterpieces if he somehow managed to um get the discipline and the thought into these moments in that you're dealing with animation history you're dealing with history of racial representation you're making a satirical point which is of you know the sort of blunt being sort of you know um the african african-american culture attempting to sort of integrate into um into american life and just constantly being shot down and constantly being rejected um it's provocative it's thought-provoking um and it's silly as well and i think like in those little moments you're like wow you know this is this is what it could be like all the time um you know always want him to give him more money yes. in lot and more time to make these things and i think again that's part of the part of what they are is is the is the story behind them yeah i mean i, I actually would be extremely disturbed to see Ralph Bakshi with a, with a, with a massive budget. So, well, well, we're getting that, there. This is the we are getting there, yeah. So we've, what we've done here are the sort of the three um, of his earlier movies, these calling cards, um, all of them sort of set in urban settings, all of them made on the budget, um, all of them made sort of in a very sort of countercultural, you know, fuck you Disney kind of way. Um, and the problem is, is that We've now reached the point, sort of, you know, to set the story. We've had Fritz the Cat, which was a great commercial success, but we've now had Heavy Traffic, which made hardly any money, and Coonskin, which never really got released um, very, very limitedly because it was picketed so much. Um, so Bakshi finds himself sort of needing to um, mm. find other ways of telling stories, and, and that becomes a debate that we'll we'll have next week. We could call next time mainstream Bakshi, um, although. <laughs> Or I think, although I think that is unfair, I think there but, are some interesting uh, things in it. Yeah, uh, but I think it's also accurate. And what's interesting about when you watch these three early ones together is that you can clearly, I mean, w yeah. which is why we look back at these, we, we, we call them reviews of, you know, director reviews, but we're actually reviewing not necessarily his films as well, but of course we are, but him as a, as a maker, yeah. specifically him. And you can clearly see 
a definitive change because he did the first two quite early, quite close to each other. He then took a couple of years gap, mm-hmm. and in those two years gap, you can clearly see he's 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 learned his craft somehow. He's just got a little bit better at it. He's, he's, he's made it a bit more cohesive, a bit more filmy. So even just give him some more years off, which he does throughout his career, and he just see just this, this man change from being this like this studenty geeky type to being a more mature man, and then obviously a much older man later on in his career as well. So yeah. that's also worth looking at for people as well to see how he himself develops his craft, and you know, in and out of his films really. Absolutely, because because to stress again, these films are made so quickly that they can actually be called films of their moment, which is very rare to say about animation. And that usually, it's particularly mainstream animation. It's such a behemothic exercise; it takes so long between inception and release that these these things sort of exist in in and of their own terms. Um, but these films are made, you know, in with you know a year's production, so they are they are in their own time. And as you can say, you can see the sort of change in style and the change in interest in subject matter as we go through it. So at this point, we've got Bakshi um, desperate to sort of get a hit because he's in danger of sort of falling out of the industry entirely. He's made two films that made no money for their financiers. So we are now entering a period of filmmaking where his choice of subject matter uh, changes drastically uh, yeah. we are no, we're going from social realism to to fantasy now yeah. uh, and this is very often at least in um, discussions of Bakshi considered to be uh, you know his most commercial yeah. period of filmmaking where he's sort of making hits at the box office because he sort of needs to rebuild his um, reputation with the financiers and uh, let, let's face it Nothing's changed. Nothing quite <laughs> make nothing makes money quite like fantasy films, right? Sure. So, <laughs> so he turns to fantasy um, uh, with the film um, we're going to talk about first, which is Wizards. Yeah, Wizards, yeah. And literally thirty years ago he made this, or or is it forty? My maths is absolutely terrible. It's forty, isn't it? Forty years yes. ago he made Wizards. Nineteen seventy-seven is a sword and sorcery piece about a world split in two. The bad areas which use technology against the good areas that use magic, creatures versus elves. And uh, it's an evil wizard's conquest that needs to be stopped. Uh, generally speaking, I like this one, Alex. And uh, generally, out of this little period, as I've already mentioned at the beginning, uh, two of my top three favourite Bakshi films so far are in this period, actually. So uh, we'll have to see how if you agree with that. Uh, frankly, though, the animation is extremely haphazard. <laughs> yeah. But there are reasons for that. He didn't even do pencil tests for this because his budget was so low. Uh, like the red and green beings from the Badlands stick out so much, it's as if they were from a totally different film. Uh, but actually, Alex, for me, that's part of the charm. Uh, as is the fact that lots of real Nazi archive footage is shown in this, which is quite bizarre, uh, but also effective enough in the point that it wants to make about you know the conflict in this film. You've got a, basically an evil wizard that is Hitler. And he wants to unify the world under one kind of race and that kind of thing. It, it's all you know, very predictable, very seen it many, many times before, but charming. Uh, and the best thing about this uh, film for me, Alex, is just lots, lots of nice little touches for Bakshi supporters. Like you know, um, Fritz the Cat has a couple of references of that in there. Uh, there's lots of slapstick as well, which is obviously in a lot of his other films, particularly Fritz the Cat as well. And actually, just a few nice touches of humour that kind of we associate with Bakshi, really. Like, the char- there's a character called Avatar, who is a barefoot elf, but his steed always wears socks. I mean, that's great. That's just simply great. <laughs> but more, most importantly for Bakshi himself, uh, Alex, is that, you know, we mentioned at the top he needed money. And boy, he made a great return on this film. And the film saved him, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the film cost about a million dollars to make and made you know, tenfold, even more so at the box office. It was a pretty decent hit. Um, not quite as big a hit as the film that came out about two weeks after it. Uh, Indeed. <laughs> um, but, but actually, it was sort of never really, as much as this was actually going mainstream, it was never really designed as a sort of, you know, multiplex figure filler. It played mainly in sort of college towns and things like that. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you really liked it because I, 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 Wizards is one of my favourites his um i think it straddles this really interesting line in that i would argue it's every bit as anarchic and uh and bakshi-esque in both the positive and negative sense that we were talking about last week um as his previous movies he's just sort of doing it now in a in a world of high fantasy yeah so instead of instead of urban new york we're seeing these sort of magical lands set up but but for me there's still 
the the animation has that lovely sort of handmade quality to it as you say it's ramshackled it's it's you can see the budget sort of ripping at the seams as you want <laughs> um it incorporates lots and lots of different styles right so we get um, the incorporation of live footage, we get the incorporation of found footage, we get the use of um, rotoscope, which we'll talk about in a bit um, yep. in terms of Lord of the Rings, because Absolutely. it's used there. But but we get um, uh, scenes, you, you know, old old Eisenstein movies that are reanimated and included as part of the sort of final battle scenes. Uh, we get still drawings from different comic book artists, which means that even the character design doesn't ma maintain like any consistency. We see characters look very different in some shots to other shots. So there's this sort of ramshackled homemade quality that I sort of find really endearing. And, I, and I, I'm agreeing with you with that these little sort of details make it wonderful. You mentioned the character of Avatar, who's sort of the main wizard, the sort of main heroic wizard, but seems to be channeling sort of Columbo, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of cigar smoking, rasp yeah. voice, um, and ends up sort of shooting um, his his brother, the main antagonist, with a gun, saying something like "Screw you, motherfucker" or whatever. <laughs> uh, and, and 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 there's there's something very charming about that. Yeah, I really like Wizards too. I think it's um, I think it's Bakshi esque in the right way. Uh, I, I you know the transposition of, of of urban fantasy and the th and the things that was happening in his previous films to what's happening now. It's basically 1977, so he's he's been in America for quite a while now. Because of that, saying, and so he's actually himself seeing a change. He's seeing the change between what maybe he was promised, what he assumed America would be, you know, the kind of pure fantasy and absolute beauty and, and like magic about America, the magic of America versus the grim reality of America. You know, it's nothing but flashing lights and poison, basically. So there's all there's a little bit of context in there as well. It, it's a splendid little film, uh, and it, it's one of the few that's actually on disc and uh, as kind of makes a massive difference as far as I'm concerned, uh, Alex, especially with the next one we're going to talk about. Uh, which is even on Blu-ray, which is even better, uh, Lord of the Rings. Now, we're not going to sit here and tell people the plot of Lord of the Rings. Are we? <laughs> what is the point of that? Spoilers, no. Let's not even go there. So, the only, th the only things we need to say, really, are obviously it's the first two parts of the trilogy that he's done for Lord of the Rings. Uh, so, uh, and that's pretty much it, really. So, the rest is up to you. Uh, and obviously, one thing you're going to talk about, I know, as an animation expert itself, is the technique of rotoscoping, which kind of sh shows its head here, and for all of his future films as well. So uh, over to you, Lord of the Rings, really. Well, okay. I, I like this slightly less than The Wizards. I feel like this yeah. is slightly less... There's less of Bakshi's thumbprints in it. This was very much sold as the first Tolkien adaptation, uh, sold as an adaptation of the movie. I don't dislike it, though. And I think the one thing that Lord of the Rings is important in terms of Bakshi's career is that it's the first film that has any sense of narrative. <laughs> right? And, and it's because it's obviously based on Tolkien's yeah. novel. But it actually does a pretty damn good job of, of making that narrative comprehensible right and, and 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 filing away all the extraneous details if anyone's tried to read the lord of the rings it's full of lots and lots of extra details beyond the narrative and 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 i know this is sort of um feels like old hash saying that he's done a well job a good job at simplifying it because we now of course have jackson's uh film trilogy um to contextualize with but this is the first go at it um, so that there's that thing that's very impressive about it. And the second thing is, yes, this use of rotoscope. So if people don't aren't familiar, rotoscoping is a technique whereby you um, you create animation out of previously live action footage. So you film something in live action and then draw onto the live action to create the animation. And the entire film here was shot primitively um, as a live action film. And then Bakshi used this rotoscoping technique to try and create a sort of level of richness to the detail. And you see this um, throughout the film. Sometimes it's it's perhaps not so easy to notice because the rotoscoping simply uses sort of the basis for a far more sort of normal, traditional uh, animated look. Other scenes look as though that it is live action footage uh, being incorporated into the film, which adds a real sort of interesting, arresting detail to, to the movie. I think, I think it's technically very, very accomplished and um, uh, I like it, but I would say it, it starts to lose that sort of homemade charm that makes his earlier films um, so endearing. Yeah, I mean, I'm exactly the same with you on this. Uh, I liked it, but I loved uh, the next one and this one a lot, uh, the previous one, yeah. a lot more than Lord of the Rings. Uh, basically, what's interesting is that he's able to make uh, the, the, the Tolkien work so accessible, bearing in mind that Jackson did three films on it and it, all of them were three hours, like three hours long. Absolutely. Whereas this, 
this combines the first two parts, you know, the Fellowship and then the next bit, into one two-hour film, basically. Two hours, 20 minutes, I think it is. So that in itself was a great achievement. Uh, again, I want to bring up the fact that this is on Blu-ray, and it, ha it makes such a difference to Bakshi's work. And it's such a shame that not all of, there's not some sort of wonderful Blu-ray box set of all of his films, because I think it would help a lot. Not to say that you can't polish a turd, because that's extremely harsh, bearing in mind the budget he had and the techniques he had available technologically-wise. And the fact that he was basically learning his craft as the whole, you know, the whole animation circuit was learning the craft. But, you know what I mean, it really does enhance your experience watching Bakshi animation when you're watching a Blu-ray copy of this. Especially with the rotoscoping. Now, my favourite scene in The Lord of the Rings is the bit where they're in the tavern and there's a party. Yeah. It looks absolutely spectacular. I mean, in fact, the rotoscoping, you, that actually looked live action. It looked yeah. that good. Like, they are popping out the screen. It could almost be 3D before 3D. Like, just truly, truly outstanding. Sometimes stick out a bit too much, yes. But, actually, that adds so much to it. Like, you've been drawn into this world. It's just beautiful. It's a beautiful film. Really, really beautiful film. And, actually, what, as much as we've, you know, made fun of, you know, this film compared to the, the epics and all the budget that the, the three-hour, 50-million-hour-long ones have been, well... Uh, the, what, there were some scenes taken straight out of this, weren't there? I mean, one of them in particular was where they're hiding under the, the hiding from the Dark Riders mm -hmm. uh, in in the hills in the hill bit. But there's a like that, the kind of hiding the mound or whatever it is. Uh, that scene, you know, Pete Jackson said, "Look, I've just I've took that out. I've took that out of the Bakshi film, and it, and it is. It's there in the in the in the real live action one. So it's yeah. influential. It is beautiful to look at in terms of Bakshi. Yeah, it's not a masterpiece by any means, but recommended for sure. As as is the next one and the previous one. Yeah." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, did, I mean, just on that point about The Lord of the Rings and its influence on the Peter Jackson version, it's really interesting because if you read interviews with Peter Jackson, um, he rarely mentions Bakshi. When he mentions Bakshi, he usually quotes this off-sighted anecdote where he first encountered The Lord of the Rings reading the novel with a cover yeah. with a <laughs> the Bakshi on the front. Yeah. And he makes occasional comments about a reference to Bakshi here and there in the movie. But to be honest, he doesn't really remember the film, which is a very suspicious yeah. Uh, position to take if you then watch the Bakshi movie because it's full of things that are then come up again in the Jackson version and not and things that are adaptations and changes from the novel. So you mentioned the scene with the Black Riders, that's perhaps the most striking. But for example, the prologue at the beginning, right? Um, yeah. It ends with this sort of um, backstory prologue that's very, very, very similar to uh, the, the Jackson version little um, simpler, simplifications of the narrative and changes to the narrative are there. You could almost call back um, Jackson's versions a sort of live action remake yes. of, um, of Bakshi. And a readaptation, and I'm not, I'm not um, taking away from Jackson's work, because I do like the, those films quite of a lot. Of course. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 but the influence is writ large, and I think Bakshi deserves a bit more credit than he often is given in, in shaping the Lord of the Rings live-action version. I mean, I mean, I mean even, even in one or two moments, it's frame for frame. Yeah. And, and that is blatant plagiarism. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, absolutely. And Bakshi's a bit... Like, when you read interviews, Bakshi's a bit upset about it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, he sort of uh, feels that he's been written out of it. But then, you know, cantankerous is, is perhaps a good word to describe his usual uh, tweets and interviews these days. Indeed. Uh, anyway, let's move, let's move to the 80s. 1981, I think it is, American Pop. Uh, American Pop is a musical drama that follows four generations of Russians, uh, Russian immigrants in America and how their lives are affected by American music. Uh, Alex, this is my favourite Bakshi so far in our look back at Ralph Bakshi films. I've got a lot of time and a hell of a lot of love for this film. Because for me, it's kind of an amalgamation of all of his other films. There's humour, there's race, there's politics, there's social standing, there's class, there's all the stuff we've mentioned so far. It's all in there with rock music. Fantastic. I don't need anything else in life. No, <laughs> this is enough. Uh, but actually, uh, and in fact, the fact that the focus is on the music, not all that other stuff, makes it even more accessible for everybody else. And, and for me personally, more enjoyable as well. Uh, there's so many great scenes in this. I mean, we could frankly talk about this all day. Uh, but I love the Jimi Hendrix cameo that's there. Uh, but for me, the first 15 minutes of this are pure magic. I love it. We get the Russian context with some beautiful operatic music. Then we get the bloodshed of like the kind of Chechen thing that's happening or whatever it was happening over there. Then to the sleazy theatres, 
in America. The dirt and the grime and the cheap sleaze of the entertainment, the dodgy dancing, the awful songs. And then we see that obviously the first generation of the Russians come over. He's selling like bills and, and tickets and this kind of thing outside. It's Then we go to the house full of Russian immigrants kind of looking disheveled, which is, you know, may not sound that exciting to look at, but this is Bakshi, and his crudeness of the animation fits so well. Like, literally all of these Russian immigrants housed in this in this tower block were, like, drawn with, like, 2.5B pencil or something. Just, like, it fits so amazingly great. And, of course, that scene itself, which ends in a lot of death and destruction and fire and everything like that, that was actually based on a real-life, the worst atrocity in New York City's history, or one of them anyway, because of that saying, uh, kind of with a real-life instance of that actually happening where there were thousands of, well, not thousands, hundreds of uh, Russian immigrants all housed together, and then they, there was a fire in the apartment block, and they all died because the doors and windows were locked. And that film managed to capture that, and I think Bakshi name-checked that exact thing in his film. So, I mean, I've got more to say, but I'll, I'll let you have a say. This is, again, my favourite Bakshi so far. Love, love American pop. Yeah, I, I love it too. I, it's, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, if someone took against this, against this movie, I just wouldn't understand why. Why? <laughs> why, why? Why you might not love it as much as the two of us seem to. But, like, it's, it's, it's you know, uh, lovely visuals, wonderful animation, and a great soundtrack of, yes. of really great pop music. Like, there is little to take against i would say and and i'm with you in that like it tells this i think i think what it might show is like having worked on the lord of the rings and something as complex in terms of narrative as that this is that this is uh for me a film that has the, that narrative cohesion again right which which yeah. isn't present in in <laughs> earlier movies or indeed in wizards as much as i love wizards probably as much um for different reasons it's a sort of new sophisticated polished bakshi that 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 although the narrative could be argued to be episodic and it sort of follows this generation of family to family to family, it never loses any sense of structure or clarity um, and tells this very sweeping sort of epic, you know, story of the American dream gone wrong and gone well. Um, and yeah, I think the visuals are, are really impressive. I think the one tiny note of criticism, and I don't really want to make it because I like the film as, as much as you do, I think, is is I think it, it obviously it, it draws on the same rotoscoping technique as the previous movie. And I think yeah. as much as that is very technically sophisticated, what's lost is a certain sort of sense of, of Bakshi's own expressionistic ability, right? In that in the, it's so grounded in reality and, and flourish that it begins to resemble a more mainstream kind of animation that we're used to from other studios and uh, i don't think it particularly matters in this movie but I, I, there is a certain part of me that would like some of the chaos back from the earlier movies you know but other, otherwise what a great piece of work yeah and you, you mentioned the, the sense of narrative we've got here and, and frankly thank god <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but but actually what we also have here is with it is pace and yeah. it goes I mean, we basically see four children in this film. Is what we see. We see these four children, then an adult, then a, then that adult has a child, then that etc. 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 Quickly, like extremely quickly. Like if you kind of think how how Benja how the Benjamin Button film, <laughs> like you know the aging process in that film takes fucking forever. Here, <laughs> twenty minutes, bang, he's an adult. Twenty minutes, bang, he's an adult. Like it's brilliant. It's like it's a reverse of Benjamin Button, and in full throttle. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's good. So it's a complete reverse of Benjamin Button. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, God, yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> um, yes. No. Yeah. Absolutely. There is a there is a real injection of pace. There's a sense of momentum, and the, the historical sort of narrative helps that. You know where we're going to get to eventually. Um, you're excited to go there, and and yet along the way, there's time to sort of reflect and and think about. I think my the, the bit that I find most compelling, which probably speaks to my. Um, nostalgic and romantic sensibilities is the sort of you know the beatnik um you know jack carrack on the road style scene where we get one of the characters sort of um you know traveling from place to yes. place yes. uh lying in a cornfield in kansas uh yeah. with sort of various waitresses that he picks up at the local um, dive sort of canteen and and spouting beat poetry and listening to sort of early uh 50s, late 50s, uh, rock yeah. and roll and things, uh, and sort of the way that, that those fields are depicted, the way those sort of rural scenes are depicted after all this sort of shots of urban life is re really um, amazing. 
We should say about the soundtrack as well, it's not just the songs, it's sort of re reinterpretations of the songs, right? Yeah. And that also adds a sense of freshness to the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, if it just fit, if this would satisfy so many people, you know, music fans, animation fans, road trip fans, <laughs> you know, drug films fans from American. Like, it, it's just, oh, it's just absolute. You can't, you can't, you can't say it's perfection because it isn't, but it, it's absolutely bloody marvelous. Yeah? yeah, I mean, I mean, it's gonna make some want, some dodgy ones to come, but this, this is just fucking splendid stuff. And yeah, this mean, is uh, this is the one truly. If I was, if I was, you know, Desert Island and all that, I was asked to take one Baxter film with me. Then I think this is the one that would fill all the criteria if I felt the need to watch some Bakshi on that day. Yeah, this is the one. It's got everything in it for everybody. Yeah, I, 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 I'd, I'd struggle between this and Wizards, but I tell you what, I would. I think why I agree with you is that I would, um, I would be very willing to show American pop to anybody because I can't, I can't see anyone not like. I can see someone finding it fine and not amazing, but I can't see anyone not liking it. Like, I, it's, it's not a film to take against. Whilst I can see in things like Wizards, which would probably be my other favourite, yeah. um, a certain abrasive quality that you either have to sort of go with or not. Um, and I can see people taking against Wizards, but there's what's not to like in American pop. We're, we're entering sort of the death spiral of, of Bakshi's <laughs> career, unfortunately, here, which is very odd because we left him in such a positive note with American pop. Um, but but he, does, he only makes... Well, three more movies and then one short we'll talk about yeah. um, recently. Um, for a various mixture, I, uh, to me, I read it as creative burnout. Bear in mind, he makes sort of about ooh, six or seven movies between in about eight, nine years, and these are animations. To me, this is actually sort of trying to produce more, but running slightly out of ideas. And what we've got here with AK Good Looking is a very odd film in that in it was meant to be released in 1975. Um, but was pulled by the studio mainly because of the failure of Coonskin. Coonskin never got released because of the, um, it was picketed by various uh, civil rights movements. Uh, so, so they got nervous and pulled his next work, which they had already made. And by all accounts, I've not seen the 1975 version, I should stress, um, because it's still unreleased. But by, by all accounts, it's sort of a very odd sort of mixture of live action and animation, uh, a bit like Heavy Traffic, but even more so. Yeah. What we have now in 1982 is a much, much more a re-edited version made by the studio and Bakshi to capitalize on his success with things like American Pop and The Lord of the Rings, where the live action stuff has pretty much been removed entirely and replaced with animation. And we get this sort of odd coming of age, Cribs-esque story of, of Italian-American men uh, growing up around New York, Brooklyn and Coney Island, uh, flirting with women, getting with women, um, engaging in gang warfare, these kind of sort of slightly, well, very rebellious and, and violent acts. To me, I, to me, it's, 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 a, it's a mixed bag. It's sort of nice to see Bakshi, uh, it's nice to see a glimpse of what that kind of movie was. To me, it does feel like a throwback to his earlier work and not necessarily in a good way, yeah. I think film is very confused as to what it's trying to do. I'd like to see the 1975 version because I think it'd be more visually interesting after the sort of high watermark of visuals of things like American Pop and Lord of the Rings, we've sort of gone back to a much more sort of uh, homemade and not necessarily terrific feel. I don't know what the plot is trying to say. To me, the characters are all incredibly unlikable. I mean, none of Bakshi's characters are particularly likable. He's a bit of a misanthrope, but 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 particularly unlikable in this. And to to me, this is a film that grates much more than his earlier work. To me, in the earlier work, I guess at least there's a sense of experimentation and youthful rebelliousness going on. Here, it feels like we're returning to old themes, which I guess is a bit unfair, seeing as that this film, in its genesis, was made at that time. But after the films we've now watched, this feels like a step backwards for me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, although I will disagree about the characters slightly. I'll come back onto that in a minute. Uh, oh. This is, it's just about all right for me. Uh, and, and, and I guess this is, for mm. me, it's kind of a mix between heavy traffic, which you've said, with a little bit of American pop, uh, which is interesting because it kind of happens, obviously, in between those two pieces to a point. Uh, some hilarity in there, yes, and some a bit of good music in there, yeah. Uh, I really like, I actually really like the two characters, to be honest with you. I like Ronnie who is basically an Elvis equivalent. Mm. And then he got his sidekick, who's Crazy Shapiro. 
Uh, and it, it's a kind of classic parallel there. One is good-looking and they've got fancy clothes. The other one has a fairly atrocious suit that stands the test of all of all time. <laughs> like it, it goes through the mill, this suit, and it still comes out looking absolutely wonderful. So that's that, well, in a way. Uh, it's a typical opposite partnership that kind of provides a bit, for me and at least, some entertainment. Uh, there's a fair bit of uh, slapstick cartoon violence here. There's women being thrown around the place like they're made of nothing through glass and through roofs of cars and things. It's Bakshi. Mm. It's Bakshi. That, that's pretty much all we can say about it, really. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, not to guess. Again, I think my problem with it is that it starts... I don't know what it is, but to me, there is something odd about the movie in that it, it's... Me I think, you know, not to get all metropolitan liberal elite on us, but I think <laughs> there, is, there is a certain misogyny coming through yep, here. Yeah, absolutely. It, and I think there's misogyny in all his movies. You know, I'm not, I'm sort of not excusing, you know, there's earlier issues going on in, in and, you know, things like Fritz the Cat, where where the female figures are sort of very much sort of uh, lecched over and, and sort of highlighted and sexualized. But I think with those films, it simply gets away with it because everyone is portrayed like that. Like everyone is thrown about and everyone is um, sort of made to be grotesque. Whilst here, that does seem like the female characters are the victim of both the visuals and the narrative. Um, and I think this might be a recurrent theme when we get to Fire and Ice as well, actually, that there is a there is a misogyny creeping through here, mainly out of just lack of technical sophistication more than anything else, but it's, it makes it a much more unpleasant dynamic for me. Yeah, uh, uh, to be honest with you, I did watch this film in its entirety whilst flicking through Twitter. And it is a film that you can do that. You can keep, you, you can keep looking, looking up occasionally when a woman gets thrown through the roof of a car, watch it for another 10 minutes, then go back to Twitter. Like it is, It doesn't need your full attention, this film. You get it whilst it's on in the background. And that really isn't a compliment for any film, never mind no. uh, a Bakshi animation. Uh, and I think we'll move on then, therefore, to Fire and Ice. Uh, in the red corner, we have the fire team. And in the blue corner, we have the ice team. Ready? See what did Fight. <laughs> And that's the film. It's a fantasy film. It's very, very easy to follow, therefore. More rotoscoping in there, which uh, doesn't quite shine as much as it did for me in terms of Lord of the Rings, for example, but is still quite impressive. Uh, again, uh, Alex, it's okay. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's okay both narratively and it's okay visually, and that's so you know upsetting to say really um, i think i think honestly the issue here is is that it doesn't to me feel particularly like a bakshi movie i think it could yeah it could be anyone yeah the rotoscoping gives it away slightly but yeah. and then he sort of has admitted that by the time he got to this movie he was a little bit sort of burnt out and quite a lot of the visual uh uh, effects and quite a lot of the supervision behind the film was given over to Frank Franzella, who, yeah. who the um, uh, who the who sort of was a collaboration with. And the film looks very different. It feels very different. This is the least Bakshi movie, for better or worse, um, on of the, of the films we're going to talk about for me. Um, and, and I and I suspect his involvement was was not at its as its height. You know, for that reason. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned Zeller there, obviously. Apparently, he was quite a character, wasn't he? He was quite a demonstrative person to have around whilst making this film. Uh, and yet, you don't really see any of that in the film. It is just so average. Yeah. Like, uh, there's not really any zip to it. it. It's, I mean, there's even some kind of... The romance between, the, essentially, one member of each team, if you will, one from the fire world, one from the ice world, it's all just so nice. And one thing that we can't ever accuse Baxi of being, Alex is nice in his films. I mean, generally generally speaking, as you said, misogynism, yeah, but also, just generally speaking, there's there's anger there, there's a point yeah. of view, there, there's something, as this, this is just, it's almost a, a horrible thing to say, Burnout's a good description of it, it's almost like this was done by a student doing his first ever film, just like playing with it, mm. uh, but but even here, techno technologically wise, we've, we've seen things done better, uh, narratively, it is so plain, uh, the background's done not particularly good, it's just, it's hard to recommend this. It really is, along with most of the others we'll be talking about right now. Absolutely, I, I think I think it's on one of these weird situations where the snake eats its own tail. In the uh, yeah. in the sort of Wizards and Lord of the Rings, his two earlier works kind of kickstarted this high fantasy boom that existed yeah. with Hollywood for about six or seven years from the late seventies, early eighties. And you had thing, you know, live action wise, you had things like Conan the Barbarian and uh, Cold. The Conqueror and all these sort of very sort of cheesy B movies by today's standards, but high fantasy, uh, 
fiction. Even you had Disney making things like The Black Cauldron. You've got, you know, cult classics like The Dark Crystal being made now. And this feels like a movie to cash in on that wave. Now, it's ironic enough that that wave was sort of kicked, started, thanks to people like Bakshi. But this feels like a film that isn't... um, at the forefront of that wave, but a pedestrian effort just to cash in on it. Um, and, and that's, that's a sad thing to say, because as you say, I'd rather it, I'd rather it be worse and, and, edgier, and, and yeah. more interesting because yeah. what it is, is sort of fine. Um, but in no way remarkable and in no way noteworthy. And, and I, and, and not, uh, this is the last time I'll say it cause I don't want to sound like a broken record, but again, I think the way the female, um, is it Tigra, uh, protagonist yeah. is portrayed is again very problematic in that she just sort of basically walks around in a bikini for the entire time <laughs> um, with with nipples drawn. So I think there is also an issue going on that's just a bit silly. If anything else um, to do with gender politics. Indeed. Uh, speaking of silliness, that leads us on very nicely to Cool World, does it not? Yeah. Right. So Cool World again, we're talking about cashing in on. Things I think Bakshi struggles to get finance throughout most of his career. He seems to manage it for for the seventies, and there's that brief period we were talking about last week where he's sort of managing to blend his own style with a commercial success. By this point, he's you know there's been a very long gap between uh, um, Fire and Ice. Uh, cool World comes out in the early nineties, and and it, by all accounts, it's again it's a it's a way of cashing in on the success of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So we get this odd live action cartoon crossover where we get Bakshi style visuals used to sort of create this land of cool world, a world of graphic comics, which people like Brad Pitt stumble into. (laughs) And and it's this film is just fucking annoying. Like, I can't (laughs) think of any better way of describing it. It's just (laughs) irritating. There is something about having live action actors pretend to be in a Bakshi movie. And that's what it feels like that really starts to grate. Um, And blending that with a very unsophisticated way of blending the two things together, it's just annoying to watch. Um, And and I can't, you know, this is is probably my least favourite Bakshi movie. It has to be. It has to be. (laughs) It must be. I mean, it's... uh, I mean, the thing is, you know, when you hear about these cult films that are kind of that are kind of notoriously bad, and then you think, nah, 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 surely not. Maybe Tom hasn't been kind to it, or maybe people need to revisit it, re-examine it. This film really is as bad as everyone <laughs> said it was. There's, yeah. no getting, there's no getting away from that. I mean, I've got nothing to add that you've, you you haven't already said, and, and all you said was how fucking annoying it was. <laughs> That's good enough for me. I mean, the be- the best thing about it, actually, is how much it makes you appreciate Who Framed Roger Rabbit, mm. and in particular, the performance of Bob Hoskins in there, because... Brad Pitt and Gabriel Byrne are simply not up to task here. Most of the time, they aren't even looking in the right places. Like, I, 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 like the, there's your animated thing, and they're looking towards, you know, the things in Stockholm, and they're looking in fucking Tokyo for it. Like, it just, it ain't good. No. Like, you, you know, at least, I, I can't imagine that they did that in any different way to what Roger Rabbit did, in the sense that to represent Roger, you had like a broomstick with ears on. Because then Bob Hoskins, Bob Hoskins knew where to look. I can't imagine that they didn't do that here, and yet it still doesn't work. Or maybe you couldn't even afford the broom this time, uh, Alex. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that's. I think it might be. It's only made with much lower budget than Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and and you know, part of me wants to try and defend it by going like, you know, Bakshi's always been interested in sort of letting the gaps and the, and the and the lines be seen. Sure. And all. Sure. But 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 you're completely right. There's, that would be nonsense to defend this movie. And it's not even just about the eye line. There's something very annoying about sort of the visual style of the cartoons matching with the with the with the live action. It just doesn't fit together. It doesn't work aesthetically. It, it feels like a live action film that someone has doodled on. Um, and that sounds kind of fun, as I say it out loud, but it isn't. It's no. um, it's 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 technically unsophisticated, and and I think there is something also about because Bakshi obviously directs the live action version as well, the live action scenes, and he do, and he gets people to perform like their cartoon characters, and that's the trick that they pulled off in Who Framed Roger Rabbit is that Bob Hoskins is playing a film noir detective. Yeah. He is in a completely different genre movie, and that's why it works. He is not playing Bug. 
Bugs Bunny and Brad Pitt is playing Bugs Bunny and that's what's fucking irritating about it is that I don't want to watch live action actors gurn and jump about in the same way I'm happy to do that in a cartoon form. So that's the issue. It's not even they're combining live action. They're trying to get live action to look like and pretend like they are cartoons. Sure. And I don't want to watch that. <laughs> Alex, you don't have to watch it ever again. <laughs> it's, it's fine. And frankly, neither will I. Yeah. Now, uh, now uh, Alex, time for a podcast first. And we've been doing this podcast for about three or four years now. This is the first time we are actually ever going to review a short. And, uh, okay. frank and uh, frankly, Alex, I wish you wouldn't have to. <laughs> what should we say? Well, what, what we can say is that this is actually a crowdfunded project. Mm -hmm. uh, and I genuinely wonder if it was worth the wait for Baxter supporters. Obviously, we'll find out from yourself in a minute. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a good budget this had as well. And narratively, it's not really that much. Uh, last days of Coney Island, it's called, by the way, I should say. Uh, we're kind of used to that at this point, right? About narrative not really being that important. Animation-wise, to be fair, he kind of you can tell that he, he chucks absolutely everything at this with what he could do. There's pop art, there's crude drawing, there's stock footage. He even includes the music, which was actually re very reminiscent of his earlier work. There's even a cameo of the pig police. Nice to see the pig police in HD form. I enjoyed that. <laughs> But overall, Alex, for me, as a conclusion, not really worth eulogising over that much. Uh, but then I think I've kind of taught myself, convinced myself that, is it really the point? Was it really important for this to be a great send-off for Bakshi? It's just one last blast from such an important figure in the field, and I think that's probably enough. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there is... Um, I, this is the, first, the only film I hadn't seen before we started this marathon, actually. So it was nice to finish... Um it off and, and see it finally. Yeah. I, uh, I sort of agree. I think I quite liked it in the sense that it's nice to see that Bakshi still exists and he's still <laughs> yes. making, it's still still making the same movie. Uh, yeah. But then it's also like, he's still making the same movie. Uh, and, and that's, you know, a problem. It, it feels like a vanity project for fans, which is exactly yeah. what it is, right? But, but I think from the way it was pitched, it was an attempt to sort of get Bakshi back making movies. And he's been moot, mooted for quite a while that he wants to make Wizards 2 and all these sort of things. I think this was meant to be him sort of saying, I'm back rather than I'm off. And yeah. to me, to me, I read it exactly as you did. And it feels like a swan song and a final sort of little um, PS from, from a filmmaker with the same interest, the same visual style. And unfortunately, you know, the world has moved on in 20 years, uh, well, more than 20 years uh, since you last made a movie. And, and you can't really just make that again. Uh, you can't do those same visual styles. You can't use those same issues. And yes, there's a, an incorporation of some digital technology here. Um, but other than that, it's, it, it feels like a, 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 another Bakshi movie. And what, it, what I wanted from it was something yeah new something like right what can you offer us now and unfortunately i think the answer is bakshi is a director that had his time and god what a wonderful time it was and i've really enjoyed going through that time with you theo but but that was of its of its time and i think that's that's that you know i think yeah. um, i think we have seen the last of the great bakshi movies um but hey we still got them so that's good Indeed, and he, he kind of pops up, doesn't he, in random cinemas to, to kind of put his odd ones back on for an evening yeah. and like the Q&A with him. So if, you, if people ever have a chance to do that, which is unlikely in the UK, I would suggest. But I think I think he did one or two in London, I think, in the past. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, things like that is always worth looking out for. Uh, so and we should, what we should say, Alex, is that this is available on YouTube. Absolutely. So uh, yeah, absolutely. go, go ahead, head over to Bakshi's uh, YouTube channel and people can watch it uh, if they want to. Uh, so basically, we've reached the end of the podcast, but more importantly, we've reached the end of our look at Bakshi, Alex. So as, as is the norm with this kind of, uh, this kind of episode, uh, which ones, if I was to kind of help hold you at, you know, not a gunpoint because that's inappropriate these days, really. But uh, we, so if I was to force <laughs> you to, if I was to force you to choose, uh, which sure. ones, which ones would you recommend above all else? And, and as a, as a final paragraph, how would you summarise what we've watched? Okay, so I would, I would pick, I would want to sum, I would want to represent uh, early Bakshi, and I'd want to represent Bakshi at his best, and I would not put any of the ones we just talked about today Indeed. on the list. <laughs> so, so I would. I would. I, I'm a huge fan of Coonskin. I think Coonskin is an extremely provocative work, and it's messy and confused and all over the place. So if you want early backs, you go to Coonskin. My favourites always, though, um, tussle between Wizards 
and American pop. And it depends what mood I'm in. At the moment, I think I'm going to say Wizards, but tomorrow I'll probably say American pop. And I think those are two really wonderful movies that uh, represent something really different about uh, American cinema. And I think it's important to stress that what we saw, what those movies are, are popular animation movies. This was before Disney made its comeback. This was before um, we had the Renaissance and animation was allowed to be weird and different and yeah. could be popular. And I think what Bakshi represents is sort of, you know, and we've, it's interesting we reviewed a Scorsese movie. My argument about Bakshi is that he, for his time, was the Scorsese of animation. He was, you know, he's, he, he's the easy rider of, of US popular animation. He made punk rebellious countercultural movies throughout the 1970s and early 80s tapping into the uh, youthful resentment of the period and he made them really well and pushed uh, both the aesthetic boundaries and the narrative boundaries of popular animation in a really interesting way and I'm so pleased that his contribution to US uh, filmmaking exists like that. Um, did he last the test of time? No, he's a filmmaker of his decade um, but uh, but he's worth celebrating for the contribution he made. And his films really are wonderfully different. And that's worth um, highlighting. How about yourself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, along those lines, uh, I mean, for me, uh, clearly the two periods worth bothering with are the early period and the middle period. Mm. And, and, and since you're saying Wizards, I'll happily say American Pop. <laughs> uh, and as for the early period, you know that I love Fritz the Cat. Yeah. It, it, it's such a perfect introduction to him uh so yeah i would say those two i can't honestly say that you know sitting here that i've loved the majority of his work alex i think that's fair that's fair enough but this is the point i want to make yeah. the central theme with a lot of these directors that you know this podcast has looked over hanneke kurismaki lang uh bakshi these people kind of despite a lot of budget despite the politics around them interfering or just generally being omnipresent and the bearing in mind that a lot of these guys are kind of outcasts or alienated from society for one reason or another. All these directors that we talk about have made some absolutely astonishing pieces of work despite and around those problems that can already have surpassed the work of their, shall we say, I don't know, uh, better connected, richer colleagues of the same era. And Bakshi's one of those. 100% he fits into that category of, of director, yeah? So so much go was was against Bakshi. So much was against Hanukkah and Lang and Kurzmaki. Like they haven't got the money. They're not really the, of the class. They haven't really got the networking. And yet they've all managed to do stuff that is better than their colleagues. Often, <laughs> and, and, and you talked about the Disney thing. This is back. Bakshi has done one or two films that are better than what Disney did. There is no doubt about that of the same era. So that alone is is worth the candle that we're holding holding it up to. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And and the industry had to respond to him. They had to respond to him and, and make better movies because of him. And I agree. I don't think there's a perfect movie amongst the bunch we've watched, but there are moments in all his films that are better than, uh, that, that are worth sh sifting through four other movies to find. 